You're listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, where it's all about helping you grow your Denver real estate portfolio. Here's your host, Chris Lopez. You're listening to episode number seven in the Ultimate House Hacking Guide for Denver. So in this episode, we talk about personal finances. So you need to have your personal finances in order to buy house hack number one, but also we talk about what you need to do or keep in mind so you can buy future house hacks, two, three, four, and so on. And we also talk about what type of reserves that we keep and the thought process behind it. That way you can come up with your own cash reserve plan as you buy real estate and also your other personal finances. Because you gotta keep in mind, you're buying future rental properties, with high leverage. Those three and a half, five percent down payment loans are high leverage. So you want to keep some cash in the bank so that way you can withstand market issues, tenant issues, job issues, global pandemic issues. That way hopefully you can uh, you know ride the speed bump or ride the downturn. Uh, but most importantly, you get rich in real estate by holding on to it for the long run. So we talk all about that. So here's yep the recording with me, Joe and Jeff. Enjoy. All right, guys, so we're going to jump in this module because uh, this is a lot of people don't talk about this. A lot of people gloss over it, but this stuff is extremely, extremely important. And, you know, right now, as recording this, you know, we're about a month into the coronavirus pandemic stuff. And the people that have built their personal financial foundation, they're going to weather the storm. That people have not, they are going through hard times right now. So this is stuff we've been preaching for years uh, for exactly this type of reason, because it's a matter of when, not if, when something bad happens in your life, to your job, to your business, the market, no one saw this pandemic coming, but man, you know, six weeks ago, we were at all-time highs over the place, and now the world's falling apart. Um, the market, tenants, whatever, Bad stuff happens. It's going to. That's the one certainty we know with real estate investing. I don't want to sound pessimistic or scare people about this, but our goal is to give you that reality check because we want to make sure that you, in the good times, you're good to go. When the bad times come, that you can weather them and capitalize on opportunities. Because if you can weather the storm, hold on to properties over 30 years, what happens? You build a lot of wealth. So really listen to stuff and actually make sure you're doing it. No one's checking it. This is something you have to do yourself. So make sure you figure out what what works for you. Uh, And here are some key principles that I follow. And then Jeff and Joe are going to kind of share what they do uh, because we're all pretty similar with some slight differences, though. So the very first step, which we've talked about a few times here, is to talk with a lender as soon as possible. And that is simply so you know what you can or cannot borrow. I call this your reality check. We all say, oh, you know, I've had people say, oh, you know what? I, I know what my debt to income ratio is. I've got great credit. I'm good here. I can afford this place. And Joe, they come talk to you then. What happens sometimes, unfortunately? Um, you know, the the reality sets in that, you know, they think that this is how much they can borrow. And uh, they think that they've, you know, can put down X number of dollars. And then we really get into it. And maybe their credit's not as good as they thought. Um, or maybe uh, the cash income that they've been getting, but they haven't been claiming on their tax returns, we can't actually use it. And so maybe they're not in as good a shape as they think. Or the alternative, um, maybe they, I've seen this happen with self-employed people, they feel like they make you know $5,000 a month. And when we really dig into their tax returns, they make uh, $7,000 a month and they can qualify for something more. Or maybe the client thinks they've got to save up $100,000 for their down payment. 
But you know, they take your advice, they call me right away. And you know what? I can get you qualified with $15,000 down or $20,000 down. And they're like, holy cow, I, I thought I had to wait another two years. Um, so the reality could be better or worse than what they think. But this is something that I do every single day. I look at people's personal financials all day, every day, and help them understand how much money they can borrow. Um, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't understand it yourself. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do your own homework. But that's what I'm here for. I'm here to give you the straight answers and help you understand, all right, this is what we can do. This is how it's going to work. And, and we'll talk through it together because it's not one size fits all. Um, you know, shoot, even Jeff, we've worked together and sometimes we'll do a transaction one way. And then on the next property, we'll do it a slightly different way because it works better for that particular property. So it's not a one size fits all, but that's, that's what I'm here for is to help you understand that and answer those questions. And I'll add a couple of things on here because I a hundred percent agree with what you said, Joe. Uh, and I get a lot of clients, um, who say, Hey, in like six months, you know, my lease is ending. I want to buy a house act, which number one, I love people that, hey, cool, they're many months out in advance because it allows us to get our ducks in a row. And I always tell people, hey, go go get uh, pre-approved. Go talk to Joe. Get your finances in order because occasionally what happens is there's a, a gremlin on their credit report or there's something that they could start doing now that might take two or three months to clean up or maybe pay off a, a, a debt or do whatever it is. So that way, four or five months later, so two months before we start putting offers in, their credit is good to go. So I know I've had a few clients do this. They've gotten those just, oh my gosh, I didn't know that was on there, or I didn't know that was gonna be a problem. Okay, great, it's not a big deal, but it takes you know a month to a couple months to resolve, and it makes them stay within their timeline. So please, please, please talk with a lender ASAP. You talk to me in person, that's be one of the first things me and my team tell you to do. Um, so let's talk about down payment and closing cost funds. So we've kind of given a few ranges in the past, and typically what we're seeing for most our typical house acts, uh, people all in are between about twenty to thirty-five thousand dollars all in. So that's the earnest money, which is a good faith money they put down uh, when they first put the con when they first put the offer in, and then the down payment plus all the extra closing costs that come with real estate, because real estate is not a cheap. Uh, asset to transact in. There's cost. There's lots of parts involved. There's lots of people involved. It costs money to buy and sell real estate. So it's a really rough ballpark before you start talking to me, you start talking to Joe. This is a good rule of thumb, but also we often buy properties below 20,000. Sometimes we buy them above 35,000. I'm giving you the, like the, the common range we see here. But here is, um, uh, I, I don't want to sound too rude on this, but I talk to people and like, yeah, I'm ready to buy a place. And then we get into it. Then like we put an offer and like, oh, you know what? The stock market just dipped a little bit. I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to go out there and, and buy the property now because I, you know, if I sell them, I'm going to lose like a thousand dollars. So number one, I think that's a very short-sighted thing. Like if losing a couple hundred dollars in a stock sale is going to make or break you, like that's just the reality of investing. You can't time it perfectly. You've made a bunch of money. Don't care about a few bucks. But when you are serious about buying property, what I do and I recommend to people is get your money in cash because yep. it's liquid. And uh, Joe, does your checking account have wild swings going up and down? Mine no, doesn't. No, it doesn't. And one thing I want to point out, when we say get your money in cash, we mean cash in the bank, not like 
you know, stacks of hundreds under your mattress, like, <laughs> like cash in the um, bank. Because I have received pictures of that where people are like, here's my money for my down payment. I'm like, oh my God, please go to the yeah, bank. Yeah, really? Like, yes. If, if wow. I could tell you some of my stories about, about cash. Uh, so that's a really important point. Cash in the bank. So money in the bank that is not swinging up and down, right? Put it in your savings account at Wells Fargo or US Bank or USAA or wherever, um, and have it ready to invest because then you're not worried about, all right, it's going up $1,000 today. It's going down $1,000 tomorrow. And you're not trying to time that. Um, once you're ready to invest in real estate, put that money in your savings, You know, take it out from your stock market, take it out from your bonds, put it in your savings and, and be ready to invest it. And something else, I, I definitely want to talk about this because a lot of people keep them in the stock market. Um, and there's some, hey, the stock market's going to go up and up forever. Oh, in the long run, it probably should, but it's, as we said, it's going to have its dips, and that's why when you're ready to buy a place, pull it out. Now, I've unfortunately had, I want to mention this too about keeping it in bonds, because I've had some people say, oh, well, I put my money in bonds because that's a lot more stable in the stock market. Well, Joe, if I put you know $40,000 in the bond market and interest rates changes, what does that do to my bond prices? Your bond price can go down as well. It's not guaranteed to always go up. Yeah. And this is an important point to understand that, like, if you put your money in bonds, which is definitely usually a lot less uh, volatile than the stock market, um, but the way bonds are priced, you know, if I buy a bond, say, at 5%, and then interest rates go up to 6%, the value of my bond goes down, right? I that's th- yeah, correct. that's what it does. Yep. So it goes down. So you have to know what happens to the interest rate because if you buy your bonds at a certain time, they're worth a certain amount of interest rate payments. When interest rate changes, the value may go up or go down. And you may have more money, you may have less money. And I've had a, I've heard a couple of big horror stories. And I feel bad for these people. It's like, oh, I've just been playing it safe. I put my money in bonds. And then there's an interest rate change. You're like, oh, well, I don't get it. I, I just sold. I just lost $15,000, which you know is a huge chunk of money. So understand the risk to both of those. You know, we're not financial planners and all that. So definitely talk to a, a, a licensed professional, understand all the ins and outs. We just want to give you tips that we see here as real estate professionals that keep people from buying. And a lot of times in our eyes, it's, you know, it's short-sighted mistakes. And a lot of times it hurts themselves financially. So make sure you understand that. I keep my stuff in cash. Jonah, you keep your stuff in cash. Jeff, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, no, I mean, definitely. I like using the ally type banks of the world, the online savings accounts. So I do keep and also have, you know, my own checking accounts as well, but just to get a little bit of return. Uh, but I can pull the money out, you know, so it's basically like a, you know, a fancy savings account that gets a return on investment to get keep up with inflation. Um, and then I keep, you know, a good chunk, especially for, a future down payment closing costs, you want to be prepared. You want to be able to access the money quickly and not having to scramble last minute. Or what if the market dips? Like I couldn't imagine if I was trying to buy this last month and then my stock position went down 20, 30%. And then like, what if I was planning on that being my down payment closing costs? And now I have to come up with the other, the difference. So that would, uh, something, you know, the risk level, you know, so it's good to have, if you have the money into Wells Fargo or just a big bank like that, you know, you're fine. So 
we just talked about getting yourself set up and getting the money needed to buy your first place or your next place. Now, the next thing that comes into account is having an operating account or operating funds because there are expenses with the property. Uh, there are going to be changes in expenses and income, uh, rents and all that stuff. And so great. Once you buy the property, what are some good rules of thumb to follow to make sure that you don't get caught in a, a hard spot? Because uh, Joe, let me ask you a question here. Yeah. If I if Jeff buys a place today and he buys it five percent down and his mortgage payment is two thousand bucks a month, but he's at you know he's at a ninety five percent loan on the property. I bought a place you know fifteen years ago and I've got you know a thirty percent loan on the property. I've got way more equity than Jeff does. If we both stop making payments, I get better treatment, right? Uh, no, no. Wait, why is that? Uh, because you signed a note that said you promised to make payments every month. And if you stop making payments, we're going to foreclose on that property. And so this comes down to is making sure you keep enough cash, you know, liquid cash on hand to handle the, the rough times. Like right now, we said we're, we're in you know, the end of April in the coronavirus pandemic. Um, vacancies are higher, you know, uh, rents. Hey, some people aren't getting rents collected. You know, things are just getting weird right now. So this is, I would say, an extreme time, um, but this is a perfect example to keep in mind. So this is stuff that we have been preaching before any of this stuff happened. Uh, my personal rule of thumb is to open a prop a a separate bank account for every single property I own. And I agree with Jeff. I like ally.com. They're just an easy to use online savings account. I open up and so when I buy a property, I got my down payment, I got my closing cost funds, and I've got six months worth of PITI, so principal interest taxes insurance, that I can go ahead and fund the account. And the day I close that property, I open my new account and I put six months worth in there. So my rule of thumb for myself and my clients is have six months worth of PI and TI and HOA payments of an HOA or $10,000, whichever is greater. And then I do that for each single property. On top of that, you know, if I got, you know, those handful of accounts and I keep one more, like one other account, it usually keeps about ten to $15,000 in there. And that's just like my, my catch-all emergency fund in case there's a really big expense on one property. I, I got that. So every property is six months worth of PITI. And then I got a catch-all reserve fund just for my real estate. It usually stays with about ten dollars to $15,000 on there for if a tenant totally trashes a place, a new roof, or major expenses. Great. I've got enough cash to handle that. And that's my rule of thumb. Uh, Joe, what's yours? You know, I agree 100% with this. I think six months PITI, um, that's the bare minimum. Uh, well, no, that's not true. That's not the bare minimum, but I think that's very appropriate. Uh, I would say bare minimum, no less than three months. And if you've only got three months, I would be pretty nervous if I were you. I would be saving up uh, every dollar of cash flow that comes in to build up to that six months. Um, personally, I like to keep uh, eight to 12 months for each property um, just because I'm a little more conservative in my investing. Um, and I think some folks have seen that if you've read the investing strategies book, um, which I think we're going to talk about here in a little bit. You know, I think the more cash you have on hand, the easier it's going to allow you to weather the storm. You know, we've got a lot going on right now with people asking for uh, rent forgiveness or months off of paying their rent uh, or, you know, payment forbearance on their mortgages. The more cash you have in the bank, the easier it's going to be for you to sustain through those economic cycles. And then if you have cash in the bank, that's going to make it easier for you to buy properties uh, on that, you know, when you're coming out of a downturn 
um, versus other people that maybe don't have cash in the bank. So I think having cash is, is really, really critical. Jeff, what's your what's yeah. your personal finance guidelines? So for me, it's very similar to yours, uh, but I just kind of combined the two. So I, so do you like you know six months, eight months of the PITI or an HOA plus like uh, when you do the maintenance maintenance capex vacancy percentage reserves? So any months you don't have to pay that, you could throw into your operating fund, so it builds up. Um, and you're still making a return on it because that's like excess money you projected you wouldn't have because you do projections. But since uh, that month worked out well, you could throw it in there. Um, and then in the year, um, you know, maybe you could take out, go bring it back down to the six month PITI and then use that excess money for improvements or your next property. But that's the way I look at it. So you actually like every month you're looking at how much of that percent of yep. reserves you keep it in there? Yeah, so I look oh, at wow. okay. I, I break it down by month, and then the excess I throw into uh, the you know the extra amount for each property. Yeah, like I thought about doing that, but honestly, that's just <laughs> too much work every month. I mean, my rule of thumb is you know about once a year, or when it comes to buy another property, I look at my accounts. I'm like, oh, I put more money in the account in six months. I'll take it out of there because if I if I dip low six months for a little bit to pay for something, like I'm generally fine with that. So I did even do like a once year review. Does that eh, cool? I got extra money in here. I'll, I'll pull some out. Or if I know something's coming up, I'll leave it in there. But I like to do an annual review. And it's just the I'm a keep it simple, stupid guy. So I, I like to keep things simple. Yeah. So another thing on here is like, again, you heard what me, you know, Joe and Jeff do. Now you are going to be in a completely different situation with a completely different risk profile than we have. We're not telling you this is exactly what you need to do. We're just telling you based on our experiences, running numbers, being through good times and bad times, this is our comfort zone for leveraging up while also keeping cash on hand to write out the bad times and also take advantage of the opportunities that pop up. Now, you may not have six months worth of cash because if you're a you know uh, just out of college house hacker buying your first place, yeah, your cash is going to be tight. Um, so you need to figure out what's the right fit for you. Now I've had lots of clients cause I would say, Hey, what is your plan? And like, Hey, I've got a few months to fund the account, but something really bad happens. I can pull money on my Roth IRA and my 401k. Fine. If that's, you know, I'm just like, great. As long as you have a plan for this, that's what I want. So make sure that you have a plan for having at least some cash on hand to handle day-to-day stuff and then having uh, liquid cash available for basically, Oh shit moments. Um, for unplanned moments, make sure you're planned on that. Last thing I'll say on here is just making sure you have something in place on how you will fund your next property purchase. Now, this is going to vary a lot, uh, but what I do is I keep all the separate bank accounts for each bank account or each property, my one catch-all account, and then I have another account. It's that Ally account and just labeled my real estate investing fund. And based on my finances for my monthly savings rate, you know, when I have extra cash, I just put the money in there and that sits in a checking account or a savings account making, you know, 1.6% right now. Um, And then when that gets up enough money, I've got cash in there to go buy my next property. What do you guys do? Or do you have a separate account or separate system for that? Uh, I just really, you know, build up. Uh, the cash flow, and I, I like exactly what you guys said that you know you have your operating funds, then you're going to review it. We do it about uh, every quarter, I would say that all right, we're going to move some money from our operating, you know, six months PITI over to our fund for purchasing the next property, and then I also save a, a portion of my paycheck that goes into 
the the savings account for saving up for the next property. Um, and I think you you really want to keep those separate. You don't want to be dipping into your operating your reserve funds per property. You don't want to take money and put you below that six months to buy the next property. If a good deal comes along, you're like, oh man, I'm going to dip into my reserve funds because I want this deal. I don't think that's a good idea. I think you really need to be saving up independently of those reserve funds. And once you reach the the dollar amount that you want for your next property, that's when you start looking for it. Yep, I completely agree. That's where I look at it too, is I don't want... I much as I you know, like to peruse the MLS and say, oh, this looks like a great deal. I'd love to buy this now or an opportunity looks great. Um, the reality is this is a long-term patient strategy and you don't want to go below your thresholds that you set for yourself um, to minimize your... Really, it, it's all about minimizing your risk. And if you... Let's say you found a great deal, you want to buy it and now you're, you have $5,000 left in the bank. And now, like your furnace goes out of your property, your water here goes out, someone someone damages something, and now it's like a uh, $15,000 bill. Now you're in a, it puts you in a higher risk level. So that's where yeah. I, I like the more conservative. You build up enough over and excess your um, operating funds and reserves, and then, then you're prepared to buy the next property. Yep. I could not agree more, especially with, with what you said, man, this is a great deal. This is a great opportunity. Uh, I have a saying that, that I try and keep in the back of my mind that great deals are like buses. Another one will be along in a little while. Yep. I, I like that saying. And I always tell myself, I'm not worried about the deal that will make me. I'm worried about the deal that will break me. If a yeah. deal is going to stretch me thin, it's not worth it. All right. So Kind of got that's your personal financial foundation we talked about. Hope that gives you a gist. And of course, go talk to a professional, spend time on Google. There's lots of resources out there, but get a plan in place. Um, you know, lots of books, lots of Googling out there for that stuff. Or talk to us, we can give you our again more of our tidbits. Um, so real quickly, we're gonna touch on the big picture of setting you some goals now because goals and personal finances go hand in hand. So, in a very simplified manner, there are four phases to your investing strategy. The first one is actually creating your real estate investing strategy, identifying what it is and executing on there. If you don't have a plan, you're not gonna go out there and follow it. So as we've talked about before, house hacking, nomading is a phenomenal way to go out there and build your rental portfolio. As we mentioned in a previous module, um, you know, we every year I publish the Denver Guide to Real Estate Investing Strategies. And I do that, frankly, because it makes me publish my strategies and goals. And my number one reason for that is it holds me accountable to myself and the public. And the bonus is I get to read Joe's and Jeff's and other people's out there. And it's a really great way to get your stuff dialed in and read other people. So do you have to publish yours? No, but it's open out there to anyone in Denver that wants to. Uh, if you want that public accountability and to actually have to write it down and communicate it publicly, it's a great way to figure out what you want. So step one is create your strategy. Step two is the accumulation phase of buying your properties. So a general rule of thumb, if you think about the power of compounding interest, um, we always ask, hey, should I buy a property or should I pay off my current mortgage? If you look at all the modeling out there and actually run numbers on there, you'll build greater wealth by accumulating more properties now before you pay them off. So very simply put, um, you know, I can go out there and get a loan from Joe, let's say at 4% to go buy an investment property today. 
well, if that investment property is going to make me 20% this first year on return of my money, well, 20% is greater than 4%. So I should buy more properties rather than paying off my debt. So from a very simplified manner, uh, if you want to get towards a certain cash flow for retirement, um, for early retirement, all that stuff, focus on accumulating properties before you start prepaying debt, because that's going to get you a greater return in the long run. The third thing is then once you get the number of properties you want, then you say, hey, great, I got all these properties. Now, once these properties are paid off, I'll have my cash flow number that I want that makes sense for my personal portfolio. And I can then quit my job or I can then retire. I can then do whatever I want. So then you take that money and you do the debt pay down. And a lot of times this is just as simple as like the debt snowball. Um, Once you get to the number of properties, a lot of times it works out to about 10 properties, what people want. Um, Great. You got your 10 properties accumulated and they're, you know, maybe cash flow in 2000 bucks a year, 5,000 bucks a year, 8,000 bucks a year, but they're paid off. They'll be making you 20,000 bucks a year, 15,000 bucks a year. Take that smallest uh, loan balance and start taking all your extra cash flow and prepaying that loan. And then once you knock off that one, go the next one, the next one, next one, and snowball it that way. And then you retire. So this is a very simplified plan. And there's a lot more nuance in here in steps two and three of accumulating properties that pay down. And we'll talk about some of these strategies in a future module. But from a simple starting point of your roadmap, this is the best roadmap to start with. So talking about that end number you want for retirement, what's that cash flow go goal? Uh, Joe, are you buying rental properties in hopes of being on HGTV one day? I have zero interest on be zero interest in being on HGTV. Uh, I want to buy rental properties to retire. Yeah, and I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. That's why I'm buying it. Jeff, why are you buying it? Yep, that's my end goal is to retire yeah. um, before 65. <laughs> So what you have to figure out here, the way we talk about this is figure out what your total retirement cash flow needs are, You know what that future date is and what your cash flow needs are. And this you'll need to do work on your own or talk to a financial planner to help you figure out this other stuff. But if you need, do you think $20,000 a month to retire, well then figure out, hey, how much am I going to subtract for social security? What's my pension if I have one? Annuities. What's my safe withdrawal weight from stocks? Yada, yada, yada. And then figure out what do I need from real estate? So we're going to talk about the cash flow number just from real estate on what you need. So a very, very common goal I hear, and this is nine out of 10 clients I talk with, they say, hey, I want about $10,000 a month in cash flow. Um, And I say, great, here's how to figure that out. We'll give you some really good rules of thumb. So what I do personally, and again, do what's best for you, is I think in today's dollars, because one of the great things about rents is they keep pace with inflation. Actually, if you look at the last 40 years in data in uh, Denver, rents about paced inflation slightly. So I think there's a good chance it may continue to do so because we're a growing market. But I think, you know, be conservative. I plan on my rents keeping pace with inflation. If they outpace it, it's a big fat cherry on top. So I think it's today's dollars. Okay, so if I need that much money in the future, what's that in today's dollars? Because a, a dollar 20 years from now is worth less than a, a dollar today. So if I need $10,000 in today's buying power, I want the equivalent of that in the future. So a rule of thumb we use here in Denver for a very high level <clears throat> is the 33% rule or, a, or the one-third rule. 
as we talked about in the previous slide or the previous module with buying properties, you got insurance, property management, um, repairs and maintenance, utilities, all this stuff. So a lot of times properties in Denver, all that, those expenses, all the non-mortgage expenses, they range anywhere from about 25 to 35%, maybe a little higher than 35%, depending on the type of property and different things. So as a very quick rule of thumb, you can just estimate, hey, about 33% of my rents will cover those operating expenses for my property. And then on top of that, you have to subtract out your mortgage payments from there. So a very important to note here, since we're talking house hacking, we've talked some very creative ways for getting rents in here. This is for long-term rentals. So I would not underwrite a retirement cash flow on renting room by room or renting Airbnb. That might accelerate you getting there, but I would be conservative and do long-term rentals. And this 33% rule is for long-term rentals. It will not work for room by room or Airbnb. It's totally different. So here's a quick example. So if I want $10,000 a month in cash flow, and assuming I need 33% of that rents to cover things, well, that means I really need $15,000 in total rents. So $15,000 before vacancy, before any expenses, subtract out 5,000 or 33% for operating expenses, and that gives me $10,000 income of paid off properties. And Joe, you know, one of the classes we teach is how many properties do you need to retire? And we often talk about well, you can buy properties and build up the cash flow from rents minus expenses minus mortgage payments or rents minus expenses on a paid off property. Which one having you know paid off properties to get me 10,000 or having a lot of properties with mortgage on there, which type of scenario can I usually get to quicker to have $10,000 a month? Uh, you can usually get to having paid off properties faster. Um, because let's say you have uh, five properties that are netting $3,000 in gross rents per month minus your $5,000 operating expenses, that's going to get you $10,000 of income. And you could do that you know, through having five house hacks and then using the cash flow to pay them down. Or maybe you've got uh, 25 properties that are generating you only $200 a month because you still have uh, mortgages on them. And so you're only generating $5,000 per month in net income. You've got to buy another 25 properties. So I think you know buying them during the acquisition phase and focusing on paying them off is going to get you there. I can't say a lot faster, but faster. And it's going to get you there with a lot less headache because you don't have to have so many properties. And you're not so highly leveraged. Um, so I think you, you try, almost try to work the math backwards that, hey, I want $10,000 of income and the properties I'm buying are gen- going to generate you know, $1,000 a piece after expenses, okay, I'm going to need 10 properties or whatever, you know, that that number is for you. I think having them paid off is a lot easier approach. I completely agree. So that brings us to kind of one of the last questions is how many properties do you need? Well, it depends. Is it a single family or multifamily? Is it a one bedroom or four bedroom? What part of town? What type of rental is it? Because they're all going to bring in different type of rental rates. So again, just to reiterate, my recommendation is to is to use the long-term rents and averages because over the long run, that's probably what's going to make the most sense. So Jeff, I know you're a personal finance uh, nut as well. Mm-hmm. For your personal goals, do you go towards a cash flow goal or do you go towards a total number of properties goal? Uh, I do 
I try to look at a little bit of both. I do like per, I try to see my averages per property and then uh, try to do more. Okay, like each one of my current house hacks I've done a little bit better on. And that's just because I've learned a few more things from each buying each one and understand the market better. But uh, to answer your question, yeah, I look at more the true net cash flow goal of um, that's that's what I shoot for. And then I do, okay, um, here's my average net cash flow after all expenses um, on a per property basis. And then I do another 10 to 20% reduction off that and then multiply it. Okay, I, you know, my personal goal is I, I like that $10,000 a month. I think that's a nice round number. And then I say, okay, how many properties do I need to get to this if I average this per property minus 10 to 20% just to be a little more conservative because I'm the rates might skyrocket and the cash flow, now, cash flow might go down. You know, I can't predict the future. So I like to be a little more conservative or I might change my mind and you know, want a property that isn't cash flow as well and live in a little bit um, better area or whatever. So it's always good to set your expectations a little more realistic than saying, oh, my next property, I'm going to do better and better and better. So yeah. I do a total net cash flow per property, then I multiply like how many properties I need. Um, and yeah, and by house hacking and doing it right, it's not an unrealistic goal um, just by using leverage wisely and making sure you have the reserves. Um, just because with leverage, you can get there. My, I guess my perspective for my own um, models is using leverage wisely. You can get there a little bit faster than if I tried to pay it off. By each property and house hacking. Yep, I agree. Yeah. And Joe, do you go to, is your goal number of properties or a, a cash flow target? Cash flow target. So if yeah. I get one property that, I don't know, is a commercial property and it meets my cash flow target, great, I'm done. But that's probably not too likely, right? I think you're more realistic. Uh, you're going to have to have multiple properties, most likely. But it doesn't matter to me if it's, Three properties or eight properties, however many it is, to hit my cash flow target. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, and that's what I do as well. I'm a total what's the cash flow number guy because, as you said, hey, one commercial property that's a gigantic office building is different than a single family rental in Nevada. Yep. Okay, so to give you some additional resources on here, uh, one of my goals this year because we can give you guys a very quick crash course in about 30 minutes on personal finances and your you know longer term goal setting. One of my goals to do this year is to create your create your real estate investing strategy course. And that's to be a much more detailed guide to help people figure out numbers, help you calculate things. Uh, so be on the lookout for that. Um, something else I do because I'm in a very unique situation what I do as a real estate agent. You know, my team and I we help people go out there and we find the properties. But the kind of the flip side to this, the other half of the equation and the service we offer that makes us really unique is that we really take that long-term approach like a lot of financial planners do. Well, our goal is to, hey, great, you're buying a property now. What's your end goal? So when we do the initial onboarding meeting with you, we sit down and start figuring, hey, what's your goals? What's your current cash flow? What's your... Uh, your risk tolerance, what's all the stuff we help you put together a plan. And then, you know, on an annual basis or as life changes, you're ready to buy another property, we'll get down and meet again. And that's where we review what your your current property, your properties, how are they performing? Hey, do you need to, oh, wow, you got this? You need a new property manager. 
oh, you're you're paying that much for that? No, no, use this guy instead of this contractor. Like you'll save a bunch of money. Um, then we also look for opportunities. They're like, hey, you got equity in here? We might be able to do a cash out refinance to go buy more properties. Oh, the market's doing this now, so we got to change some expectations. Oh, your situation changed. We got just for that. So our goal here is to help people do that longer-term planning and strategy because that's my background. That's really what I, I love doing that is like that big-picture chess game. So we sit down and do that with all our clients. So if you need help with that, definitely reach out to me and my team. And the last thing, and to be a part of this, you don't have to be a client of mine or Joe's or Jeff's. This is just a resource for the Denver community. It's that Denver uh, that the Guide to Denver Real Estate Investing Strategies book. As I said earlier, every year we publish a new book and it's a crowdsourced book uh, where people can contribute their chapter to talk about their strategies and their goals. So it's a great way to learn from others and also hold yourself accountable. So guys, that's all I have for this uh, module. Any other final resources or thoughts before we hit the end? I, I love it. I think this is important. I think it's important to have your goals, review your goals, um, review them with your your partner, your spouse. Um, review it with you know a professional, whether it's me, Jeff, Chris. Um, also, don't forget about your financial planner. You know who's handling your stock accounts. Um, they should be aware of your real estate investing as well. And I think it's, you should take a holistic approach. If you read um, chapters in the book, you'll see. You know, not everybody is focused solely on real estate. I think you should have various assets. You should have real estate. You should have annuities, stocks, bonds, cash whatever is right for you and your comfort level, um, make sure you're looking at it all, all, you know, the entire picture. Joe couldn't have said any better. I have nothing else to add. (laughs) (laughs) Great. All right, guys. So we'll wrap up here. As you know, I'm an agent. Reach out to me if you can help with finding the property. Joe's a lender. Reach out to Joe about financing. Jeff is a house hacking coach. Reach out to Jeff. He can help operating your house hack. If you have any general questions, reach out to us. We can definitely point to the right direction. We work together as a team. We are here to help. So Joe, Jeff, thank you guys. Everyone, thank you for listening. We will see you in the next module. Thanks, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, everyone. Hey, thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Now, if you have any questions or need clarification, shoot me an email. Or if you want to grab a physical book copy of the Ultimate House Hacking Guide, also send me an email. My email is chris at denverinvestmentrealestate.com. A couple other services that we offer, if you need help putting together your investment plan and buying your first or your next house hacking property, reach out to me. That's what we specialize in. If you need help with lending and financing, reach out to Joe Massey. That's his specialty. And if you need help in stabilizing and operating your house hack property, reach out to Jeff White as that's his specialty. Now, all their contact details in the show notes. If you have trouble finding them or you just want to keep it simple, shoot me an email. I'm happy to answer all your questions and also connect you with Joe, Jeff, or whoever you need to talk to. All right. We'll see you next episode.